0: Amen. Phil, as you lead us in prayer for our country and, and for our area, the, our community, Fishkill, and for the Hudson Valley, our hearts cry out to God also with you, praying for the Lord to work and move in hearts and uh, rock our nation back to the Lord how we need him. Be in prayer for Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike will be ministering to the family of Marcia Purcell tomorrow. Uh, we've already met with them briefly to, to plan the service, and he'll be ministering to the family tomorrow. And um, so we rejoice in the promise of the gospel that our sister Marcia is with the Lord. We rejoice in that. Uh, thank God for his promises to us. Pray for Pastor Mike. He'll be preaching. Uh, the next two Sundays in my absence, he's going to be uh, re- resuming and continuing that series in Jonah that he had begun. And uh, so since there are four chapters and he had done chapter one, he's going to go ahead and do the, the fourth chapter. So i will be speaking three Sundays in my absence. Just keep him in prayer. I assure you that Barb and I will have you in prayer. As we are away, we pray for, for our church, we pray for the Constitution Committee and the, the elders and, and the, uh, the search team. We just all need to pray for each other as we uh, seek the Lord together. We're in Mark 4 this morning. I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles, Mark 4. And uh, we're going to get into a new section of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 4, Mark um, where the Lord Jesus uh, teaches in a parable. I'm going to begin just by reading the first two verses. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were, were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. I'm going to stop there just for a moment. You know, people today respond to Jesus in many different ways. Some say Jesus is just one teacher among many, many deny the uniqueness of Jesus. Others say that. we just can't see the, the relevance of Jesus to our lives. I mean, he was 2,000 years ago. What does he have to say to us today in 2020? Others suggest that Jesus is, uh, I mean, the whole thing is basically an empty legend. When I was a pastor in Buffalo for several years, one of the things I did was study Hebrew Bible at the university with a Jewish professor. Many of the classes were just he and I, um, uh, in his office together, studying Hebrew Bible. Um, in the course of time, uh, you know, we talked about, well, we didn't talk a lot about personal things, but I did learn his view of Jesus. He said that, you know, in the, in the ancient Roman world, there were, many, there were many legends of dying and rising gods. And so he dismissed Jesus and dismissed Christianity as based on a legend. But many others, through the centuries, from every nation and tribe and from every background, from every nationality, uh, from every walk of life, have heard the message of Jesus, the Son of God, who came, who offered his life in place of ours, on the cross, who was buried and raised again from the dead and trusted in him as Savior and Lord, and their lives have been transformed by trusting in Jesus. Well, if there are many responses to Jesus today, there certainly were also in his own day as well. In the context before chapter 4, we've already seen that the people are crowding him, crowding him, crowding him. I think this is about the 10th time when, when he says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 that there was a large crowd there. I think it's the 10th time that he has spoken of the crowds. And the crowds are so many here that he has to get in the boat so we can have a stable place uh, from which to teach the people. They are gathered all along the, the, uh, the, the, the coast, and he, and he teaches them along the, uh, the, uh, the, the shore. But others are rejecting him. The leaders are saying he has to die, he has to go. So keep this in mind. Keep in mind the varied responses to Jesus as we come to this passage. We have to keep this historical situation in mind. Notice it says he spoke to them in parables, verse 2. Now we ought to just take a moment to think about parables. Most parables, uh, in one way or another, use a triadic form or a three-figure form. That is, there's an authority figure, God or a father or a king or a master. And there are two underlings. Uh, one obeys and one disobeys. One pleases the authority figure and one displeases the authority figure. So that, that triadic that threefold uh, structure. And there's often a surprise in the uh, parables, a catch. And we miss the catch, we miss the surprise very often for two reasons. Number one, we're too familiar with the story. We've read it many times. And number two, we can't adequately get into the skin of the original hearers. Let me illustrate what I mean. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. Now, if you're listening to that story, you, you really admire the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so dedicated to God. They dedicate their lives to, to obedience of the law. You have a very high regard for the Pharisees and you hate the tax collectors. The tax collectors are selling out to Rome. And so you're quite sure which one of these is going to come out well. But of course, there's a surprise. There is God to whom they are praying. The Pharisee is bragging and the, and the tax collector can't, won't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his chest. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And it is he who goes home justified before God. It's astonishing how surprising that little story is to its original hearers. Or think of another story. You have a father who has two sons. The younger son wants his his share of the inheritance. He runs off and he wastes it all. The other son, the older son, stays at home with his father. Well, you're sure who's right in this case. But of course as the story develops the the prodigal son returns and repents and begs God, begs his father for repentance and is welcomed back with open arms. The older son stands outside and refuses to participate in the joy. And the story ends with the father pleading with the older son, come in and join in the party, join in the joy. So it's really, unexpectedly, quite unexpectedly, it's the prodigal who pleases the father by his repentance. It is the older brother who does not. It's very astonishing. Or one more example. Think of the story of the Samaritan. The parable is known to us as the Good Samaritan, which is for, for the original hearers is, is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. Uh, it's, the priests and the Levites were, were highly regarded in society. They are leaders. They are dedicated to God. But in the story, the priest goes by the wounded man, the Levite goes by the wounded man, and a Samaritan. The hated Samaritan is the one who stops and, and gives himself, takes care of the man, and takes him to, to safety. So. There, there, again and again, there's this surprise. And it is the fact that we are not adequately in the historical situation, that we lose the powerful impact of these stories. They are really powerful. And they certainly invite thought. Well, Jesus is teaching in parables. And we see, we're going to see this threefold, this triadic structure also in this parable as we look at it. Um, So the parables invite us to think. I mean, if you're addressing a crowd that includes people who are quite hostile, think about how warm it is to say, let me tell you a story. The kingdom of heaven is like I mean, it's a way of engaging their minds. It's a way of making them think about kingdom truth that is presented and hopefully through the side door of a story to engage them and to welcome them in to considering kingdom truth. Well, let's read the story in this case. Um, He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen! Which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And then he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the story. Now, one of the things I want you to notice is what frames the story. First of all, there's this word, listen, verse 3. And then it concludes with that same word, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This This is a very solemn way of saying, what I'm going to say to you is important. It calls for a response, and there's more here than is obvious on the, on, the, uh, on the surface. You know, you listen to this story and you wonder to yourself, what would I make of this story? I mean, if I heard this story, it's a story about a farmer. He's sowing his seed and some seed produces a crop and some seed does not. Now, one of the things that we might think about this story, I mean, keep in mind that we are, we are removed from farming. We're not close to agriculture. These people are very close to the farm, very close to the ground. So this is a story that they're, they're easily able to envision this process. Um, we might say to ourselves, this seems strange. Why waste all that good seed on places where it's not going to grow? Well, apparently, this reflects the farming methods of the time. Seed was sown liberally first, and only then was it plowed under. So, you know, the seed was sown everywhere, all across the field. I mean, there's a path, apparently, that goes through the field. There are briars in one area, and so forth. Some of it is rocky. But the seed is sown all over the field, and then it's plowed under. And only then would the problems be uh, obvious. Since the seed was sown before the ground was plowed, some fell on a footpath where the birds came and got it immediately. And other seed fell on rocky ground. What we're to picture here is not ground that has rocks in it, but probably a thin veneer of soil over a substrata of rock so that uh, you know, it's not going to grow. And thirdly, other seed fell among briars where it could not compete and it was choked. And other seed fell on good ground and produced a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So a wealth of, of produce comes. Now you say to yourself, if I would have heard this story and I, didn't, I hadn't read the interpretation already a 100 times, you can ask yourself, or we can try, at least. What would I think it means? A story about a farmer. He sows seed liberally on his field. Some seed produces a crop, some does not. Well, notice how it continues, verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked about the parables. Now notice verse 10. First of all, the scene has shifted. We're no longer in the boat by the sea. He's now alone. We're in another scene entirely. And uh, his disciples ask him about the parables. Notice the word parables is in the plural. So they're not only asking about this one, they're asking about his teaching. He's teaching about parables. They're now alone. And in that context, he's asked, what about the parables? Actually, Matthew tells us this question they asked. Why do you speak to the people in parables? And that question is what is answered here. Why do you speak to the people in parables? There's two, re- two purposes. Number one, the parables reveal the truth. Look at verse 10, or verse 11. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. The secret or the mystery of the kingdom is Jesus himself. And the kingdom of God that comes in Jesus, the kingdom of God is revealed in Jesus. It is revealed through his teaching, which is matchless in its power. And his kingdom is revealed through his works of power, Everywhere Jesus goes, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, and the lame can leap away for joy. So the kingdom is revealed in Jesus, but the kingdom is also concealed in Jesus, in a way. In the sense that the kingdom comes in very humble form. Jesus not wearing robes, He doesn't have a crown. He's not accompanied by attendants and white horses and chariots and trumpets. He's a carpenter, a simple man. He's poor. The kingdom of God is revealed in Jesus, and it's veiled also in its simplicity and its remarkable humility. To those who have believed Jesus and received the message, the parables reveal the truth and make it plain. To those who have welcomed God's truth, more will be given. Look at verse uh, 25. Whoever has will be given to him more. Whoever does not have, even what he does not, even what he has will be taken from him. So the parables reveal the truth. But they also conceal the truth. Look at verse 11 and 12. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever, now he's quoting from Isaiah, they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now those words and that quotation from Isaiah makes us scratch our heads. Is he saying that the parables, while they are intended to reveal the truth, are also intended to conceal the truth? That's what it sounds like. Let me remind you, it's always essential to remember the context. Look at chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, in verse 22, we read, By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. He's working through Beelzebub. It's satanic power by which Jesus casts out demons. Look at verse 23. What's the first word of verse 23? So, Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. The consequence of their deliberate, willful rejection of the light which is shining so brilliantly in Jesus is the concealing of the truth. The parables serve as a form of judicial hardening to those who refuse to hear. When people reject Christ, God gives them what they've chosen Dorothy Sayers said, if you want your own way, God will let you have it. Hell is the enjoyment of your own way forever. So the parables reveal the truth to those who are willing to hear it. The parables conceal the truth in the form of judicial hardening for those who refuse to hear and reject Christ no matter what. He may do or say. In a very real sense, we could say that Jesus Himself and His whole mission is a parable. It's an enigma to those who reject Him. You see, He is the key. To receive Him is to understand His message and to to receive the kingdom, and to reject Him means that the whole thing is just. Uh, inexplicable. Now perhaps the disciples asked a further question, isn't this a deliberate concealing of God's truth? To which Jesus replied in verses 21 and 22, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Whoever heard of that, bringing in a lamp and putting it under a bowl or putting it under the bed. Instead, don't you put it on its stand, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. I think verses 21 and 22 are a way of Jesus saying, the purpose of the parables is to reveal the truth. Just as the purpose of bringing a lamp into a room is to cause the light to shine... So the purpose of the parables, the fundamental thing of what I'm doing here is seeking to make known God's truth and making kingdom truth plain to those who will receive it. But the important principle here is that God gives more truth and more light to those who welcome the light and obey the truth. Look at verses 24 and 25. Consider carefully what you hear. Do you know that that's the fourth time in this passage that solemn warning is given? Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken taken from him. So we must take our response to God's word seriously because God does. Jesus teaches us to receive his word gladly and fully. And as we do, more will be given to us. Well, let's get to the interpretation. What's the point of the parable? Uh, Let's look at what Jesus tells us. There's a paragraph. This is one of two parables that Jesus explains clearly and makes uh, makes the interpretation plain. If all we had was the story... It would be interesting to see how we would interpret it. But Jesus tells us what he means. Beginning at verse 13. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Verse 13 suggests to some students of this passage that, that in a way the parable of the sower is a key to understanding the parable. Don't you understand this parable? If you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand the other ones? Verse 14, the farmer sows the word. Well, now that, that's clear. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where, this, where the word is soon as, soon as they hear it. Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries in this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. So, the farmer is the, the preacher, the, the, the kingdom proclaimer. It might be Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. He's going throughout the villages of Galilee saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So he's going from village to village with that message, preaching the kingdom. Or it might be one of any, any kingdom representative. Notice, that uh, the sower sows with abandon. This is is a a parable about the sower spreading the the word everywhere, liberally, everywhere. God gives his word of invitation, his word of good news, everywhere, to all, liberally, generously, including all, excluding no one. The unproductive soils are people who reject the message. They reject it for various reasons, but they reject it. It does not take root and produce fruit. First of all, on the path that's eaten by birds, this refers to the work of Satan. Satan takes the message away before it takes root. Satan is the enemy of the kingdom who binds the minds of unbelievers, who blinds. The minds of unbelievers. One could think of Judas the traitor, one of the twelve, who heard the message often, but who never believed Satan took him. Others are like seed sown on rock. You know, there's a there's a veneer of topsoil above the rock, but they don't, they receive it. Uh, but they don't last. There's false profession here. I mean, you know, the seed begins to sprout, and you say, oh, it's growing. But there's no root. There's no depth. It's not real. Since they lack root, they last only a short time. You know, when I was serving as an assistant pastor, uh, in my home church, this goes way back before I went to seminary. I was serving as the assistant pastor in my home church, and the pastor's wife I guess the pastor was away. The pastor's wife called me and said that we had received a call about a young man who was struggling in his marriage and he had called the church. He wants help. Would you go to his home and see him? So I did. I went to his home, met this young guy. I don't remember his name. Uh, This was a long, long time ago. And we talked together. And in the course of our conversation, we talked about his marriage, but I presented the story of Jesus and the call, the gospel, and the call to faith. And he he received it, he professed faith. And, um, And then he began to come to church. And he came to church for a few Sundays, and then he vanished. And he may be an example of this. It may be that he professed faith, he went along with the pastor just in order to get his wife back. I, I, I don't know. But he may be an example of someone who looks like they've believed, but really have not. And then there's the seed among the thorns. The, con- the concerns of this life Uh, combined with the deceitfulness of wealth. Notice that expression, the deceitfulness of wealth. Wealth deceives. Wealth makes offers that it cannot fulfill. It deceives people, and it can choke the word out. You know, if I take a quarter, and I hold it close enough to my eye, I can blot out the sun. And if I take possessions and hold them too close to my heart, I can choke out the message of Christ. And that's what's warned against here. The productive soil stands for those who receive Christ, who accept the message, the good news of God's love in sending His Son, who paid the price of our sin on on the cross. Who was buried, who was raised again and exalted to the right hand of God. The productive soil stands for those who accept the word. They hear the word, they accept it, and then they produce a crop. Both in this passage and in the epistles as well, the New Testament teaches us that faith produces work, faith produces uh, good deeds, it produces love. Faith works itself out in love, in service, in obedience. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. So God, this passage is teaching is that God generously calls all. Hear the call. He generously calls all, but only some repent and believe and bear fruit. Now I think one of the, one of the ways that's important for us to hear this parable is to see the strong warning that it issues. No fewer than four times does Jesus say in this passage, listen, listen. God is observing your response to his call. Satan is a danger to those who hear with indifference Two kingdoms are in deadly combat for people's souls and Satan feasts on those who hear the word of God with indifference. There's a warning against shallow faith. Our commitment to Christ must, must run deep if we are to endure the troubles and the trials that will come after we believe. And there's a warning against the suffocating danger of a heart weeded over with wealth. War- it's a warning. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Those who, are wel- those who are wise welcome Christ's call immediately so that it can't be taken away. They welcome his call deeply, deeply into their hearts and souls so that it can withstand the troubles that may come. And they welcome Christ's call to faith exclusively, so that no idols, no possessions, no other things can crowd it out. The passage is a warm invitation. God sows his seed, the seed of the message of Christ, liberally inviting all, and the passage is a warning. There are only two responses, receiving Christ or rejecting him. There is this triadic structure again. There is the kingdom proclaimer and there are two responses, receiving it or rejecting it. There are only two responses, receiving Christ and rejecting him and there are only two destinies, heaven and hell. And Jesus says, he who has ears to hear let him hear. The word of God to us this morning from Mark's gospel. We'll be continuing, Lord willing, in Mark's gospel in the weeks ahead. Uh, when I get back, Pastor Mike is going to be preaching uh, in the next two weeks. Um, and he'll, be not, he'll not be continuing in Mark's gospel. We're going to be turning now to uh, the Lord's table